0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true... I am just praying to God. This is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings wherever you get your podcasts. As Francisca sat in front of the vanity mirror, examining her face, she compared her own features to those of the photograph in her lap. The four Romanov daughters... Tatiana, Olga, Maria, and Anastasia stared directly at the camera, unsmiling. They were all dead now, murdered three years ago in Russia by the Bolsheviks. Francisca traced the curves of their cheekbones with her finger, careful not to smudge the black ink. She covered the bottom of Anastasia's printed face with her thumb. The grand duchess had large, deep-set eyes, rimmed with long, dark lashes, just like Francisca's. When she hid the lower half of her own face with her hand, Francisca saw the Romanov within her. But when she uncovered her mouth, the resemblance vanished. Her mouth was too large, filled with teeth that were too square. Anastasia's mouth was delicate, her teeth dainty chiclets. The longer Francisca studied the youngest Romanov daughter, the more she was convinced. Her own teeth had to go. She picked up a sterling silver hairbrush from the dressing table. Francisca took a deep breath and held it in her lungs, bracing herself. Then she bashed the head of the heavy brush into her closed mouth. She bludgeoned herself again and again until she could wiggle her front teeth with her tongue. In the morning, the dentist finished the job with a pair of pliers. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm your host, Alistair Murdon. Every week we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks and explain why anyone might fall for a con. Con Artists seeks to explore cons from all angles. The perpetrator, the victim, the world they lived in and the thing that forced them to fool or be fooled. In our first episode, we'll cover the upbringing and early influences of our fraudster. We'll understand what experiences shaped their mindset and the historical context that allowed them to perpetuate their cons. In part two, we'll watch the wheels come off their scheme as their victims recognize the lie. I'll detail how our subject was eventually caught, the fallout, and where they are today. This week, we'll track the life and lies of Franziska Shanskovsky, also known as Anna Anderson. In 1921, after the fall of the Romanov Empire, 24-year-old Franziska claimed she was the Grand Duchess Anastasia, the youngest daughter of deposed Tsar Nicholas II. While the rest of her family was killed by the Bolsheviks, Anastasia allegedly managed to survive. Next week, we'll see how Francisca managed to maintain her life as royalty for 60 years until her death, even in the face of naysayers. We'll follow the various attacks on her identity, as well as how the truth finally came to light. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. From 1921 until her death in 1984, Franziska Shanskowski posed as the Grand Duchess Anastasia Romanoff, She bounced around Europe and the United States, taking advantage of the hospitality of various members of the aristocracy and Tsarist sympathizers, known as White Russians. They housed her, clothed her, and fed her in a style appropriate to her station. And if her host ever grew suspicious, Francisca simply moved on to her next supporter. Francisca managed to keep up her ruse until she died in 1984. The name Anastasia is immortalized on her tombstone and she was interred in a cemetery with other nobility. It wasn't until 1994 that DNA testing finally debunked her claim 10 years after her death. Franziska Szanskowski was born on December 16, 1896 in Borek, Pomerania, a region on the border of Poland and Germany. She was the fourth of five children born to Anton and Marie Shanskovsky. The Shanskovskys were formerly minor nobility. However, by the time Anton Shanskovsky inherited, he squandered it all through alcoholism. The family was poor throughout Francisca's childhood and moved often chasing work. But this history of nobility even if only minor and a few generations removed, inspired Francisca to see herself as special. Her sister Gertrude accused her of putting on airs and acting like someone of a higher class instead of the poor labourer's daughter she was. She wore her best dresses, gloves and high-heeled shoes just to run errands in the village. A study conducted by the University of Southampton found that white lies about our prestige or successes can actually encourage our minds to work harder to make those embellishments reality. Psychologist Richard H. Gramzo, the study organizer, said, It's important to emphasize that the motives driving personal exaggeration seem to be intra-psychic rather than public or interpersonal. Basically, Exaggeration here reflects positive goals for the future, and we have found that those goals tend to be realised. Francisca spoke three languages and attended school until she was 15, a rarity for someone of their means. She loved books and read all the time, hiding in the family's covered wagon with a novel while the other children brought in the harvest. She was especially inspired by the story of King Arthur, who was a lowly orphan until he found Excalibur and the sword made him a king. Franziska wanted more for herself too. So in 1914, when Francisca was 17, she moved from the small town of Higgendorf to Berlin, Germany for better prospects. But a few months after she arrived in August of 1914, The Kaiser declared war on Russia and France, setting World War I into motion. At first, the country celebrated the war, proud of the Kaiser for defending Germany's interests. But as the conflict dragged on, the economy took a downturn. Rations were imposed. In the spring of 1916, 19-year-old Francisco was conscripted to work for the Allgemeine Elektrizitätsgesellschaft, or AEG. The company supplied airplanes and parts to the German forces. Franziska assembled hand grenades. But in August of 1916, she had an accident on the assembly line. Franziska dropped a grenade and it exploded, sending shrapnel all over the factory floor and killing the foreman. Even though she survived, Franziska was never the same completely overwhelmed with guilt. A few weeks later, she had a nervous breakdown. She was committed to a hospital in Berlin for four weeks to recover. After she was released, the AEG paid Franziska a small stipend, basically the equivalent of workers' comp today. It allowed her to stay in Berlin without having to work. It afforded Francesca freedom and stability she'd never experienced before. But this only lasted for six months. Once the stipend ran out, Franziska either had to find a new job to pay her rent or return to her family in Higgendorf, Germany. Instead, she was committed again in March of 1917, this time in a hospital in Neuruppin, a little over 40 miles northwest of Berlin. She refused to identify herself to the doctors, withholding all personal information. Until they could figure out who she was, they were forced to allow Francisca to remain in Neuruppin. She may have seen this as another chance to live without working. But in the fall of 1917, the doctors eventually identified her. Franziska was released into the care of her mother in Higgendorf. The release ledger noted 21-year-old Francisca was better, but not cured. Franziska spent the next year and a half moving between Higgendorf and Berlin, bouncing between jobs. She was never able to hold a position long, though it's unclear if she was repeatedly fired or if she simply quit. Based on friends accounts, she likely still suffered from PTSD and depression. One roommate, Doris Wingender, said, When she was in a bad mood, she spent entire days in bed. Her head turned to the wall and wouldn't speak to anyone. Then, on Sunday, February 15th, Francisca went out again in the middle of the day. She didn't come home that night. Two days later, Francisca jumped off a bridge into the Landwehr Canal. A nearby policeman heard the splash and dove in after her, saving her life but the rescue was actually problematic for Francisca. At the time, attempting suicide was a criminal offence in Germany, and she could be arrested. Worse, once the police uncovered her mental health history, she would likely be committed to an asylum for the rest of her life. So Francisca played the same game she had at Neurepin and refused to identify herself. So the police sent her to a hospital for an evaluation and the doctors and nurses questioned her repeatedly. In response, she pulled the sheets and blankets over her head and stared blankly at the wall. It's unclear if she was motivated simply by the threat of being labelled incurably insane or if she saw this as a chance to claim free room and board in the hospital. At the end of the day, It didn't matter who she was, as long as she wasn't Franziska Shanskowski. On March 30th, 1920, after six weeks without answers, 23-year-old Franziska was discharged to another asylum, Doldorf, on the north side of Berlin. She was admitted under the name Miss Unknown. Despite the doctor's continued efforts, Francisca stayed in the asylum as Miss Unknown for the rest of 1920 and most of 1921. She dove under the covers, shrieking in fear whenever someone tried to interrogate her. And she seemed to enjoy life in the asylum. Being in the hospital meant she didn't have to work. She was provided with food and a bed. She was afraid of being forcibly committed for life but happy to remain in the asylum on her own terms. Doldorf was nice. Franziska lived in relative peace on a quiet ward with 14 other patients who, like her, were deemed insane but not dangerous. There was even a small library. When she wanted a break from solitude, she chatted with the nurses about the books she read. The nurses were charmed by Franziska. As Vera Green and Victoria Hughes related in their book on Francisca, Almost Anastasia, she was really so nice, so polite, not like the other patients. She wasn't insane. It was only that she would not give her name. It was obvious that she didn't come from a rough background. What tragedy made her refuse to say who she was? What was she so afraid of? It was such a mystery. Many of them assumed that she was a lady of high society because of her graceful movements and manner of speaking. Miss Unknown had an air of dignity, even haughtiness. Had she come to the asylum to escape a horrible arranged marriage? Francisca played into their conjecture about her social status. She told them about her plans to buy an estate with horses after she left Doldorf. One nurse recalled a conversation they had about a book on the crown prince of Germany. Francisca spoke about him as if she knew him personally. There were rumors across Europe about the turmoil in Russia after the revolution. The country was in chaos. By the fall of 1921, strange stories about the Romanov execution three years earlier made their way to Doldorf. Newspapers speculated that some of the family managed to survive the firing squad. Soon, Francisca took advantage of the lack of definitive details. In October, one of the nurses at Doldor found Miss Unknown looking at a newspaper photo of the four Romanov daughters. The nurse recalled Miss Unknown pointing to the youngest girl in the photo and asking, Don't you think she looks familiar? The nurse agreed. The woman looked like Francisca. And then she thought about it more. Miss Unknown's manners and grace, her knowledge of royalty, her fear of strangers and questions. Was this the answer to the mystery? Was Miss Unknown actually in hiding from the Soviets? Within a few days, the nurses were in agreement. Miss Unknown was actually the Grand Duchess Anastasia, a surviving Romanov. Coming up, Francisca explains how she escaped the Bolsheviks. 24-year-old Franziska Shanskovsky was living in Doldorf Asylum under the alias Miss Unknown. She befriended the nurses there and, through hints and nudges, eventually convinced them she was the Grand Duchess Anastasia Romanov. Tsar Nicholas II, 50, Tsarina Alexandra, 46, the Tsarevich Alexei, 13, and the Grand Duchesses' Olga, 22, Tatiana, 21, Maria, 19, and Anastasia, 17, were executed by the Bolsheviks on July 17, 1918. Because the rest of Europe was preoccupied recovering from World War I, the exact details of the execution were unknown for a long time. The story came to light in bits and pieces. The rest was filled in with rumor and conjecture creating an intense aura of mystery. Allegedly, the Red Army firing squad at Yekaterinburg was unable to kill the Romanovs with gunshots. When the smoke cleared after their first volleys, the Romanovs were not only still alive, they didn't appear to be injured at all. The soldiers claimed their bullets had bounced off their chests, as if by magic. Before the revolution, there were stories that the Romanovs had made a deal with the devil through their advisor, Rasputin. He was a controversial figure, a Russian Orthodox priest and faith healer who practiced mysticism and participated in orgies. But he was also the only person who'd been able to successfully treat the Tsarevich Alexei for Haemophilia. The past rumours about Rasputin fueled the current conjecture about the execution. Rasputin must have cast a spell to protect the royal family, and it repelled the bullets. The more likely explanation is that the Romanovs tried to smuggle their wealth out of Russia thinking they'd eventually be allowed to leave. They sewed several diamonds into their clothes to fund their lives in exile. Therefore, the bullets were repelled off their chests by the hidden stones. But that did not spare the Romanovs from death. In fact, it might have caused them to die with greater cruelty. When their bodies were eventually unearthed in the 1990s, the Romanovs' faces had all been beaten in. If the Red Army's bullets actually failed, nothing stopped the bludgeoning. However, in 1921, the Romanovs' graves remained hidden, the white Russians, who were still loyal to the monarchy, had fruitlessly searched for years. In the absence of corpses, combined with the bulletproof rumours, who could really say that none of the royal family survived? It was this unknown that Franziska Shanskovsky exploited. And once the nurses at Doldorf believed Miss Unknown was actually the Grand Duchess Anastasia, It wasn't long before a few of the patients saw the resemblance, too. 50-year-old Clara Poitert was already close with Francisca before the Romanov rumors started. Once she caught wind of the story, Clara latched on. However, she didn't think that Miss Unknown was Anastasia. Didn't she look much more like Tatiana, the second oldest daughter? At 24, that made Tatiana and Francisca the same age. Clara claimed that she was a seamstress in St. Petersburg before the revolution and saw the royal family all the time. She held the newspaper photo next to Francisca's face and determined, without a doubt, she was the Grand Duchess Tatiana. The nurses were happy to adjust their expectations. They knew Miss Unknown was someone special. That was what mattered. And by taking on this identity, Francisca was shielded from any more questions. The nurses knew now why she wasn't talking. If anyone found out who she really was, she'd be in danger. Francisca made them feel like co-conspirators. She had let them in on her special secret, and it motivated them to protect her. Social scientist Robert Cialdini wrote about the principles of persuasion in his book, Influence. He said, When people see themselves as part of a larger, shared identity, they are willing to take steps they wouldn't take for their individual interests. The research on this is very clear. So the organizer needs to build that sense of shared purpose. But in January of 1922, 25-year-old Francisca's idyllic existence was shaken. In two months, all of the patients on her ward would be transferred to Neuropin, and the doctors and nurses knew her there. She would be unmasked immediately. Francisca was frantic. She pleaded with the nurses to help her, telling them that Neuropin was infested with Bolshevik spies. The moment she entered, they would emerge and kill her but there was nothing they could do. Luckily, Clara Poitert was released from Doldorf on January 20, 1922. She immediately took up Tatiana's cause. Several members of the extended Romanov family were able to escape Russia before the revolution and lived in various parts of Europe in exile. Most notable among them were the Dowager Empress Maria Fyodorovna, Nicholas II's mother, Princess Irene, Tsarina Alexandra's sister, and the Grand Duchess Olga, Nicholas II's sister. Clara wrote to all of them and informed them of Tatiana's existence at Doldorf and the grave danger that waited for her at Neuruppin. Unfortunately, no reply came. On March 6, 1922, a week before Francisca's transfer, Clara attended a Russian Orthodox mass service in Berlin in a last-ditch effort to find help. She met Captain Nicholas Adolfovich von Schwaber. He was a white Russian and editor of The Double Eagle, a white Russian newsletter. When Clara told him that Tatiana Romanov was at Doldorf, he was immediately intrigued. The white Russians were currently in a deadlock over which of Tsar Nicholas's cousins to support in their attempt to re-establish the monarchy in Russia. The argument threatened to sink their cause entirely, but a living Romanov daughter easily trumped anyone else's claim and would unite their movement. It was exactly what they needed. The next day, March 7th, Schwaber went to Doldorf to meet Tatiana. He brought Madame Zinaida Tolstoy. She was a close friend of Tsarina Alexandra and would recognize any Romanov child immediately. But Miss Unknown refused to see them. She cowered under her blankets, hiding her face and crying hysterically. Schwaber managed to pull the cover down enough to see her eyes. Madame Tolstoy was struck. Those were Romanov eyes. Encouraged, Schwaber summoned Baroness Sophie Buxhoveden, the Tsarina's former lady-in-waiting. She knew all the Romanov children from the day they were born and would know at once if Tatiana was telling the truth. She arrived a week later, on March 13th, to weigh in. But Miss Unknown once again cowered in fear when confronted with the visitor. Sophie tried to soothe her, calling her by old pet names, but there was no recognition. When Sophie eventually managed to wrench the blankets away from Tatiana's face, the answer was clear. She deemed Miss Unknown's fingers to be too long, her mouth too big, her chin too square and her legs too short. She also clearly didn't understand Russian. Franziska claimed that it was too painful to speak her mother tongue because it brought up terrible memories of what happened to her family but Sophie was not convinced. She told Schwaber and Tolstoy that this imposter was not Tatiana Romanov and left. Francisca's fraud could have stopped there, but Captain Schwaber wasn't ready to give up. He was deeply invested in the white Russian movement and wanted to believe that a Romanov had survived. He managed to pull some strings and cancelled the transfer to Neuropin so he could spend more time with Miss Unknown. Schwabe may have been responding to elements of the reciprocity norm. This is a social phenomenon that encourages us to repay someone who has done us a favor. Schwabe expected that if he helped Francisca regain her rightful place as the heir to the Romanov throne, she would use her position to help him further the goals of the white Russians to restore the monarchy. Therefore, the more he helped her, the more she would help him. In the wake of Sophie’s disavowal, Francisca adjusted her story. At 5 foot two, she was too short to be Tatiana, as Sophie correctly observed. So she reverted back to the youngest daughter, Anastasia. Their height matched well enough. Francisca explained to Schwaber that no one had asked her directly who she was. They had all just assumed. This also explained why Sophie didn't recognize her. She was looking for the wrong sister. In addition, Francisca changed her appearance to better sell her claim. She plucked out her hairline to make her forehead look bigger. She also had several teeth pulled. Sophie complained that Franziska's mouth was too big and her teeth were the wrong shape. So over a period of several months, she had 16 teeth removed, mostly from the front of her mouth. She later said that they were knocked out by Bolshevik soldiers who hit her in the face with their rifles. Without the support of her teeth, her lips shrunk in, making her mouth look smaller. It also gave her the tendency to drool but this meant that Francisca was free to keep a handkerchief constantly pressed to her mouth without question. And the top half of her face was certainly the more Romanoff half. She deliberately disfigured herself to further her lie. As Victoria Hughes and Vera Green surmised, at some points she seems to have adopted the Anastasia personality quite passively, even playfully but the pulling of teeth was an indication of the steely purpose behind the games. Francisca may have been reacting to the other side of the reciprocity norm, which motivates us to take revenge on someone who abuses our kindness. The more people who helped Francisca because they believed she was a Romanov, the more important it was to maintain the lie. Otherwise, her allies, Schwabba, Clara, the nurses, would feel taken advantage of, and might take action against her. Their support had snowballed over the last few months to such a degree that Francisca would now face serious consequences if she were found out. Or perhaps it was simply that Francisca had finally been recognized for what she truly believed she was special. And she would pay any price to hold on to it. all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Now back to the story. In March of 1922, the Baroness Sophie Buxhoveden met 25-year-old Franziska Shanskovsky, who claimed to be a Romanov daughter. But Sophie labeled her an imposter. To try to strengthen her claim, Francisca disfigured herself, pulling out her hair and teeth her extreme measures eventually paid off. Captain Schwabe introduced Anastasia to another white Russian, Baron Arthur Gustovich von Kleist, and his wife Maria. They recognized the Grand Duchess immediately and pledged themselves to help her any way they could. The Kleists showered her with gifts and brought photo albums of the royal family to help her remember her past. Francisca continued her act of extreme shyness, refusing to answer any direct questions and often hiding under her blankets. To draw responses from her, they asked leading questions, prompting her memories, desperate for her to validate them. Francisca stored the information and used it to impress future visitors. The Kleists were very sympathetic. She was a poor, scared creature. Eventually, they decided that she would have a much better chance of recovery if she came to live with them in their apartment. The threat of Neurepin fresh in her mind, Franziska agreed to leave Doldorf with them on May 30th, 1922. But living with the Kleists meant answering their questions. Eventually, she had to explain to them how she'd survived and made it to Berlin. A few weeks after moving in, she finally revealed the truth to Baron Kleist. On the day of the massacre, July 17, 1918, Anastasia had avoided the firing squad's bullets by hiding behind her sister, Tatiana. When a soldier realized she was still alive, he smacked her in the face with the butt of his rifle, knocking out her teeth and rendering her unconscious. When she came to, she was alone with the same soldier, He'd feigned her death to his superiors to save her and helped her escape to Romania. But he was murdered in 1920, possibly by Bolsheviks, so she fled to Germany. She hoped she might be able to reconnect with her surviving family members there, in particular, Princess Irene, the Tsarina's sister. But she wasn't able to gain an audience. After only a week in Berlin, she fell into the canal and was committed in Doldorf. To explain the lack of direct resemblance to photos of Anastasia, Francisca told Baron Kleist that she wore an iron mask in Romania that stretched and altered her nose and mouth. He added the strange detail to his official account of the Grand Duchess, but it roused the suspicions of her other supporters. The Tsarina's close friend, Madame Zinaida Tolstoy, had trouble suppressing her doubts. Her dedication already wavered after Baroness Sophie's refusal. Now, the more details Anastasia revealed to the Kleists, the more Madame Tolstoy feared she was an imposter. On July 4, 1922, she reached a conclusion. That night, Francisca told her that, in addition to saving her, the soldier had impregnated her. She gave birth to a son on December 5, 1918. He had his father's hair and his mother's eyes. She implored Madame Tolstoy to send someone to Romania to look for her son, who she was forced to leave behind with his paternal grandmother. Of course, no such child was ever found. But that wasn't what made this revelation troubling for Madame Tolstoy. If the baby was born in December of 1918, that meant he was conceived while Anastasia was still held captive by the Bolsheviks. Francisca implied that the child was the product of rape. Still, it was shameful and unbecoming of royalty to have a child outside of marriage with a peasant soldier. Even worse, it complicated the white Russians' plans for the Romanov heir. The Tsar's grandson, even a bastard grandson, muddied the waters of succession. In the wake of this, Madame Tolstoy left the Kleist's apartment and did not return. She wrote to the Baron that she wanted nothing more to do with Anastasia. Distressed, Baron Kleist pressed Francisca on the details of her story. Was there really an illegitimate child she brushed off his concerns. She'd married the soldier and the baby had been baptised. There was nothing untoward. Madame Tolstoy had overreacted. Then Francisca quickly changed the subject. She remembered something new to tell him. Her father, Tsar Nicholas II, had opened a dowry account with 20 million ruples in it. Five million for each of his daughters. The account was in England, so it would have survived the revolution untouched as Nicholas's only remaining daughter, all the money, should go to Anastasia. It was an opportune moment to dangle a new carrot. If the phantom child complicated the white Russian's motivations to help, Francisca needed an alternative to inspire the Baron. In this case, 20 million rubles. But even with this gambit, she must have felt at least some concern that she was about to be revealed as an imposter. A month after Madame Tolstoy's abandonment on August 4, 1922, 25-year-old Francisca ran away from the Kleists. They immediately informed the police and mounted a search. There are a few different theories on where Franziska escaped to. Vera Green and Victoria Hughes speculated that Francisca intended to flee Berlin and start a new life somewhere else with money she'd gotten from the Kleists. The snowball of reciprocity had only grown and Francisca might have been desperate for a way out of the Romanov lie. In order to re-establish herself somewhere else with her true name, Francisca needed her documentation papers. She'd left them behind in a friend's apartment before she disappeared. Francisca never spoke about her time away from the Kleists. It was later referred to as the missing three days. No one is exactly sure where she went, what she did, or who she saw. But on Monday, August 7th, the Grand Duchess reappeared. A friend of the Kleist's, Fritz Jannecke, found her wandering in Berlin, near the park. Jannecke tried to escort Franziska back to the Kleist's, but she refused to return. So Jannecke brought her to his own apartment instead. The Kleists tried to convince her to come home, apologizing for whatever offenses she had suffered. But Franziska held firm. Perhaps she still intended to flee the lie altogether. If so, she never had the chance. Within a week, she was rehomed with a new supporter. Dr. Grunberg was a police inspector and a monarchist. When Baron Kleist reported Anastasia missing, Grunberg learned the details of her story. Intrigued, he offered her refuge in his estate in Tetlow, a little over 10 miles south of Berlin. If Francisca was attempting to flee her con, it seems strange that she would agree to sequester herself in the country, where there were fewer transportation options to take her away. More likely, she was strongly compelled by the other white Russians to move. If she didn't want to stay with the Kleists, they'd simply place her somewhere else more suitable. But it ended up being paradise to Francisca. Grunberg spent the weekdays working in the city and kept an apartment there. He only returned to Tetlow on the weekends. After nearly a year of constant questions and tests of her memory, five days a week, Francisca was now free from scrutiny. Not to say that Grunberg didn't hold his own interrogation sessions, much as the Baron had done because of his police background, Grunberg felt he was better suited to draw information out of the reluctant Grand Duchess. Similarly, he had a heightened sense of whether or not someone was telling the truth. Grunberg was impressed by Franziska's ability to describe the wallpaper in the room where the Romanov execution took place. Grunberg had seen pictures of the room, so he recognized the details as accurate he apparently didn't consider that she may have seen the same photograph. It was another example of the white Russians seeing what they wanted because it suited their goals. This is called confirmation bias. Dr. Sharam Hashmat warned about the danger of confirmation bias, writing, This error leads the individual to stop gathering information when the evidence gathered so far confirms the views or prejudices one would like to be true. Once we have formed a view, we embrace information that confirms that view while ignoring or rejecting information that casts doubt on it. Almost immediately, Grunberg determined that Anastasia couldn't remember all the details of her life as a Romanov because she was mentally shattered from everything she'd gone through. She often behaved in a naive, childlike way. Grunberg attributed this to a combination of both the trauma and her sheltered royal background. It softened his approach and he took the questions slowly. Eventually, Francisca presented him with the truth with slight adjustments. She was still saved by a soldier, but now he was a Polish exile, forced to join the Red Army. Angry at the Bolsheviks, he saw an opportunity to get back at them and spared her life. And he didn't force himself on her, they fell in love. Anastasia claimed she had also misremembered their son's birthday. She was vague about the correct date, but was certain he wasn't conceived until they reached Romania. The baby's father was still murdered in 1920, still by Bolsheviks, but now the father had a brother named Sergei. Sergei helped Anastasia get to Germany, but then disappeared as soon as they reached Berlin. She tried to contact her aunt, Princess Irene, but was unsuccessful. Then, she was sent to Doldorf. When Grunberg recognized discrepancies in this version of the truth, she blamed them on Baron Kleist. He was a greedy liar who put words in her mouth. It was his warped mind that fabricated the sexual assault. Similarly, she alleged that Baroness Sophie Buxhovedon had betrayed the Romanovs in the revolution, trading her safety for theirs she wouldn't recognize Francisca's claim because she feared being outed as a traitor. Hughes and Green wrote that this was a common tactic for Francisca. By lodging outrageous allegations against her patrons, she made the new friend feel he was the recipient of her most secret confidences. Having learned what monsters the other supporters were, the new confidant had no qualms about working against them feeding Francisca information and helping her carry out plans they might oppose. It was the same tactic Francisca had employed with the nurses in Doldorf. She made her supporters feel as though they were part of her inner circle, reinforcing an us-versus-them mentality. Soon, Dr. Grunberg was thoroughly convinced he was housing the Grand Duchess and would support her claim however he could. By November of 1922, he managed to secure an audience with Princess Irene, Anastasia's aunt. She agreed to come to Tetlo to meet Francisca and weigh in on her identity. If Irene recognized her, the affirmation would overrule any deniers. But the meeting was a disaster. Francisca called it an ambush. She'd been out in the gardens of Tetlo that morning foraging for mushrooms in the dark earth. When she came inside for lunch, Dr. Grunberg pounced. Before she could even go upstairs to wash the dirt off her arms, he dragged her to the dining room. Sitting at the table were two women that Francisca didn't know. Princess Irene was introduced to her with a fake name and Francisca didn't recognize her aunt at all. And Irene didn't recognize her. By the end of the meal, which was eaten largely in silence, she was certain Anastasia was an imposter. Francisca later claimed that she of course saw it was her dear aunt immediately that day, but she was simply too surprised to speak. No one told her that Aunt Irene was coming and she was in a state of shock. And the more she thought about it, Franziska found the entire interaction exceptionally rude. It was not at all fitting treatment of a grand duchess. Princess Irene had played a mean trick on her. Dr. Grunberg had purposely allowed her to be embarrassed. But Grunberg was just as mortified as she was. Once he realized he'd taken in a fraud, he was livid. To gain an audience with Princess Irene, Grunberg had asked the police superintendent for help. Everyone at work would know how gullible he'd been. It was the dark side of the reciprocity norm that Francisca had feared for months. Grunberg immediately banished Francisca from his house, wanting nothing else to do with her. Fritz Jannecke came to collect her from Tetlow that very night. She wept in the back seat as he drove her away from paradise. In the wake of this episode, Francisco conveniently fell seriously ill with tuberculosis. Despite the way they left things, when the Kleists heard how sick she was, they offered to pay for her medical treatment. In December of 1922, 26-year-old Francisca was admitted to a hospital in Berlin. She recovered there for almost a year. The Kleists and Schwaber sent money but otherwise kept their distance. Not only were they wary of her tuberculosis, but they also weren't sure what to think of her after Irene's judgment. But this was actually helpful for Francisca. As long as she was sequestered in a sickbed, she was isolated from any direct fallout. After Baroness Sophie's refusal, Francisca was forced to scramble for an explanation. But no one came to the hospital to question her about Irene. By the time she was well enough to leave in November of 1923, the harshest criticisms had blown over. Initially, Francisca returned to the Kleist's apartment, but she didn't stay long. Instead, she bounced from friend to friend, cycling through their guest rooms a few weeks at a time. Captain Schwaber, her most loyal white Russian, was her frequent host in 1924. Franziska liked staying with him, mainly because he had several photo albums of the Romanovs and the palace. She studied them for hours, gaining an extensive amount of trivia to serve her in her continuing charade. But these homework sessions eventually drew Schwaber's suspicions. In the fall of 1924, she lost the support of the first person who recognized her claim. Schwaber denounced her and barred her from returning to his apartment. He published an article in his white Russian newsletter, The Double Eagle, detailing her lies and calling her nothing more than a Polish vagabond. Quickly, the rest of the white Russians withdrew their support. Franziska was forced to crash with Clara Poitert, a former patient from Doldorf. It seemed finally that her life as Anastasia had fizzled out. Francisca was faced with the horrible reality of returning to Higgendorf, to her ordinary life. But soon, Francisca would meet her most important supporter, a woman who would change her life. She made it possible for Francisca to be Anastasia for the rest of her life. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with part two of Anna Anderson. We will follow the renewal of her claim, her quest for the Romanov fortune, and see how DNA evidence eventually outed her as Franziska Shanskowski. For more information on Franziska Shanskowski, amongst the many sources we used, we found Vera Green and Victoria Hughes' book Almost Anastasia extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Con Artists, as well as other ParCast originals, on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode of Con Artist was written by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alistair Murden.